SAFM. A very good day to you, Zanzi, and welcome to Otherwise Talking Women on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. My name is Shadow Twala, Hazel Makuzene is our producer, and Garnet Gwenika is our technical producer for today. You may reach us on 0892102010, email otherwise at safm.co.za, tweets at otherwise safm, or at Shadow Twala. Now, today we were tackling autism specifically, but uh, my guest, Professor Lorna Jacqueline, is Principal Consultant, Pediatrician and Neurodevelopmental Specialist, Head of the Neurodevelopmental Clinic and Medical Head of the Teddy Bear Clinic for Abused Children and the Clinic for Visually Impaired Children. She received her undergraduate training at WITS and postgraduate training at both Pretoria University and Verts. I'd like to invite you to take our number and, and do call us. We're keeping her for the whole hour. So if you have any questions around our discussion today, you may call us on 0892-102010 and we'll put your, your uh, calls to her. Um, and our lights keep on going on and off. So if, if we, we go through some kind of load shedding, um, please bear with us. But uh, my lunch bite for today is taken from Paul Collins, who says autists are the ultimate square pegs. And the problem with pounding a square peg into a round hole is not that the hammering is hard work. It's that you're destroying the peg. Otherwise, on SAFM. Professor Lorna Jacqueline, welcome to Otherwise. Uh, hello, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for joining us. I, you do so much work and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite honoured to have you on the show because of your knowledge. And we're going to go straight into autism because I think we can, as we go along, and I've invited our callers to call in, as we go along at least we can um, deal with other subjects if we get there because you deal with so much stuff. So what are we talking about when we talk autism? We, we're talking about a developmental behavioral problem, uh, of which, which has got many causes. Mm -hmm. But in, uh, so many children have got developmental problems of a wide variety of causes. But it's, this has got to meet specific criteria for us to say that this child is autistic. And the main thing is actually the ability to socialize. It's recently been reclassified, so there's a bit of a change that's taken place in what we describe. But the, the core inability of these children is to understand social norms and meet social norms. Some of them can speak extremely well. So uh, some of them have got a language disability and others don't. Um, but that... Uh, it's the ability to use language to communicate, even if they do have very good language. And these children, the other classical behavior is that they've got, they're very restricted in their interests, in their ability to do things. They will, even the ability to eat, uh, the clothing, sometimes colors that they'll just eat food that's yellow or they won't eat if it's yellow. Mm -hmm. So these peculiar habits, this kind of stereotypic behaviors that we get. So it's basically a behavioral problem that mm -hmm. we're dealing with. You said it was reclassified. Reclassified as what? Well, it, it, they, because many children were being referred obviously to all professionals working in the field, when they, so children that didn't speak were automatic automatically people thought they were autistic 
And so they've taken that out of the criteria, the uh, the speech of, and the language aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But now it's only language where it relates to social skills. Okay. So that's why they re-looked at it a little bit. And the so-called Asperger's, which was a very common diagnosis, everybody said, well, my child's got Asperger's syndrome. So that's been taken out of the diagnostic criteria as well. And so the children who were previously called Asperger's are now called high-functioning autistic children. It's just a different word. Does it mean anything physically for the child, what words we use? <laughs> You know, uh, the the problem is that if you do use a title such as Asperger's, you needed to be very clear about what you were talking about. Mm. And it was a being used more as a socially accepted word. So children who are truly autistic were being called Asperger's. So it, it wasn't relevant. And in America, what they were saying is that if you were wealthy and white, you were Asperger's. And if you were poor and black, you were called autistic. So it kind of had a, a social aspect to it, which clearly was inappropriate. And therefore, they've taken that misleading terminology out. And the new criteria is you actually describe, very clearly describe the child. So you'll say, this is a, a child who's mildly, mildly, moderately or severely autistic. Mm-hmm. So the actual autistic characteristics mm-hmm. are mild, moderate to severe. And then you will look at the, the intelligence of the child, whether this child's above average intelligence, uh, you know, where the child inte- is intelligence lay and then you will be talking about comorbid conditions so as this child also got aggression also got adhd the associated problems that this child might have and then we will also talk about well what's causing it if we've got a genetic cause and then you'll add the cause for the condition. Mm. So with the new classification, it very accurately describes the child so that if one refers the child into a service, they've got a very clear idea of not just this child is autistic, but clearly what kind of needs this child has got. So you and I, for the purpose of our conversation, we're talking about autism, right? That's it. Which, which could also mean Asperger's, but we're talking about the same thing yes. for this. Now, how, how, does it, how prevalent is it, firstly, autism? Well, we don't know is the problem. So they're saying uh, in America, they're now saying one in 88 children. Can you imagine the number of children in our country? Wow. It's so it's... Uh, it is it is overwhelming and mind-boggling. Our clinics are totally overflowing with children who truly do have autism. Um, so the numbers are high. But I, my suspicion is that in America, if you got the label, services are very rapidly provided to you. So it's almost a quick entry into getting service delivery for your child. Mm-hmm. In our country... It's totally the opposite. So if you refer a child to a special needs school, a remedial school, some of our government remedial schools especially, and you've put the label, this child has got autistic behavior, they'll say, sorry, we can't deal with that child. So in our country, children are being excluded from services if you give them that label. So I would say that if we did 
a head count in South Africa is going to be a lot lower because we avoid labeling children, whereas in America there's an advantage to being labeled. So, but, but it doesn't mean that we don't have autistic children. Oh, well, uh, we've clearly, we've clearly mm. got, but whether, it's, whether our, our status would be 1 in 88, I doubt, but, it's, but throughout the world it's being recorded as about 1 in 100. When we Which look, is still a lot. It is a lot. But when we look back, and we're going to come to the, 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 the signs and how it presents itself, but when we look back, is it on the increase, though, or, or are we dealing with equal numbers over the years? Again, nobody knows. Uh, but So there definitely is a greater awareness. So we are definitely seeing children are being referred through and we are diagnosing them when we as medical practitioners in the past may just have said this is an intellectually disabled child. Mm. I think because we know a lot more about the condition, we are now making the diagnosis more commonly. So we are definitely diagnosing it more often when we might not have diagnosed it before. So that is one issue. Mm. But there certainly is research to show that it is in addition that it's on the increase. But and, and yet people like yourself are, are understanding it better, if, if I may say so. Absolutely. Well, we hope so. We hope so. <laughs> All right. Um, Professor Jacqueline, please do stay on the line for me. We're going to take a little break and ask uh, our audience as well to, to call us, our listeners to call us, if they have any questions for you. So please do stay on the line for me. I will. Thank you so much. Otherwise, on SAFM to understand what autism is what, what what where it comes from what it affects how it affects a child and my guest is professor lorna jacqueline and we encourage you to call on 0892 10 2010 if you would have any questions for professor jacqueline but professor jacqueline uh, is, is it a brain disorder autism yes yes it's all in the brain okay so so how does it present itself then? so how it presents to me um so it can be it, it can be diagnosed very early, and which is why we should be picking it up early. Which because there the some things that research has clearly shown that the sooner you intervene, the better the child does. So it will present at an early stage, frequently with language delay, and then with very difficult behaviour. These children don't make eye contact. They socially aloof. They some a lot of them like being cuddled, but they don't like to cuddle. They they like to get onto a person's lap because it's a comfortable place to be, mm. not because it's a social cuddling thing. Mm. So parents often will say to you, yes, but my child does cuddle. Yeah, and they'll come and cuddle me, they'll come and sit on my lap because it's nice and warm, not because actually it's a sharing of affection. Mm. So it's the social aloofness that you pick up. And and how when you say it, it, you can pick it up by uh, I suppose by the age you're talking about is probably um, about a year or so. Yes, usually it's about eighteen months when mm -hmm. that socialisation skill. I mean, depend if you look back retrospectively, you can often say, oh yes, the signs were were they even earlier. And in fact, they've done some fascinating research where they've taken babies of about three months of age, and the way they've chosen these babies 
is that they've had siblings that were autistic, so they were, and there's a higher prevalence among siblings. Mm. So they've taken these little babies at about three to five months of age, and they've got them to look on a television screen at somebody talking, and they found that these babies don't look at the eyes of the parent, the person talking. So that eye contact is already deviant at a very, very early age. In the, so this had an 80% accuracy amongst those children. So that's a very, very early stage. But we generally seeing the children coming through. The earliest ones we see where the parents are concerned enough to come to us is at about 18 months. Mm. And this is frequently when there's an elder sibling that's autistic. So the parents are also watching the child quite carefully. And does it happen to both boys and girls equally? High-end boys, um, although... We think that it's being, that girls are different, so they probably not always diagnosed, mm. um, the milder ones, but about six times more common in boys, so very much more common. And the reason um, is that some, there are certain genetic conditions, such as fragile X, which can cause this condition, which is a male disorder. Uh, but we think that the testosterone may play a role on the developing brain. Mm -hmm. Let's take a call from Adrian. Adrian, welcome. Hi. Um, I watch, uh, my great-grandson is in England. And my, my granddaughter is that her son um, diagnosed because she's quite sure that there is a problem. He will not put on socks. She will not put on pants if he can possibly help it. She has a fight every single morning. He eats food. He's a little bit overactive. Um, and he is not very good with making friends. Can you tell that? Because they won't believe her over there. They are just fucking her off. She had a problem with his ears as well. It took her two years to um, persuade them that he needed grommets because he was getting infection in his ears. And from the National Health, she is not getting the answers that she needs. Yeah. So this little boy clearly has got a sensory integration problem, uh, but, but which is the... And he may well be autistic as well. You know, he's obviously got a whole lot of little problems. But the sensory integration problems, which is this either under-responsiveness or, as in this little chap's case, an over-responsiveness to sensory tactile. But they also have this auditory um, hyperacusis, that a sound which wouldn't really irritate most people becomes very, very irritating. Like close oh, yes, he does. He holds his ears. Yes. Yes. He has a funny noise, he holds his ears. Yes. So this is a sensory integration problem that he's definitely got, um, which one would need to. So so it, it goes along with autism, so he may well be autistic. But I would first deal with a sensory integration problem because sometimes once we deal with the other issues, the autism goes away or it becomes a lot milder. He's but, very intelligent. He's an intelligent child. Yes, yes, yes. He, but he's got a sensory integration problem. So he, perhaps the place to start would to be going to a, an occupational therapist mm -hmm. who would be specially trained in sensory integration to start there because he needs that intervention and then to see what 
what he's like afterwards because that's part of what he needs anyway. Right. Thank you, thank you Adrian. Uh, do you have another question? Uh, no, I, I, I would actually like to know this number because I'd like to give, uh, I'd like my granddaughter to get in contact with her if, if I could. No, no, we will, we will give out the number and, and contact details at the end of the show. Will you? Okay, all right, fine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Adrian. <laughs> Um, Dr. Jacqueline, can a child live a normal, if you may call it a normal life, if not diagnosed at all? Because you said a lot of uh, children are not presented depending on how people can afford and not afford. Can they live a normal life without uh, the diagnosis and, or, or proper treatment? Uh, there, there are many people living relatively normal lives who've never been diagnosed because I'm seeing adults now in uh, well because they the parents of the children are their relatives of the children who are out and earning a live a salary probably working a, in the it field uh fields where you don't actually have to interact with people mm -hmm. so you can and these are, are, are the highly intelligent group of autistic people who've learned to manage their lives in spite of but it's it's at a cost it's at a cost of being often being very very lonely of not being able to relate to other people and a big part of the training that we on the support we're trying to develop for these people is that they go for socialization skills so if you're highly intelligent you can be taught how to sit at a dinner party and relate to other people mm. uh, you can be taught how to dress appropriately all these things that come so naturally to us because you know we just pick it up mm. but these these people don't pick it up so they look odd and they behave odd and they don't actually need to because they can with very simple intervention learn to just fit in much better and one always one the assumption is oh but these people don't care but they do care i mean it's not that they're not aware of it but they just don't know how Hmm. All right, please do again stay on the line for me, Professor yeah. Jacqueline. We're going to take a, a, a news headlines and we're back talking to you in a bit. And I, I also want to talk to you about the intellectuality of it all because I heard our previous caller say, oh, he's intelligent, he's intelligent. And, and does it affect the brain negatively as far as intellect is concerned? But we'll talk to you when we come back uh, in a bit, Dr. Jacqueline. Okay. Professor. My guest is Professor Lorna Jacqueline and we're talking, uh, trying to understand autism as much as we can. Um, Professor Jacqueline, does it, uh, and I, I suppose also because of the Asperger's versus autism, uh, some people may assume that when you're autistic, you're quite stupid. It's the whole range. The certainly uh, intellectual impairment is a common problem in these children. And how common varies again from each country and how you're collecting statistics and who you're looking at so in south africa it would be much higher but the american figures where they're now dealing with at least because they're picking up the mildest of cases which we're not um they're saying about 50 percent of the the 
people with autism are significantly cognitively impaired and we would probably in this country say about 80 percent but uh, amongst that 20 percent they can be highly highly intelligent people Mm. so it covers the whole spectrum of intelligence can it also advance to uh, uh, creating a, a problem with uh, with vision uh, and, and, and yeah vision so thirty percent of blind children are autistic oh. um, and if you you know if it actually makes sense when you think how important uh, seeing somebody and looking at people how, how important vision is in socializing and learning social skills but the other problem is that many of our autistic children are socially deprived um, when the parents find out their child is blind they go through such a state of shock mm. that they they don't respond well to their child they don't give them the social support that the children need and because the children don't look at them and make eye contact the way other children do they're not drawn into socializing with the child mm. so yes vision is extremely important in developing social skills and many of the children that are blind also are brain damaged and that's why they're blind mm. um, and they w that would make them at higher risk for becoming autistic as well mm. so vision is important hearing is important so not having all those additional senses that make us social human beings plays a role in putting us at a higher risk for becoming autistic now I want to know what what when you've diagnosed what sort of treatment there is if at all and if understood well enough uh, as you say most of it is not understood but what sort of support is 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 available for children who are autistic okay so there's that core ability to socialize and that's really the speech therapists are very good at that it's part of the skills that they've got and these mm -hmm. children very often have got a language delay so speech therapy is extremely important. Mm -hmm. uh, the lady mentioned her little grandchild who's got a sensory problem. Mm -hmm. So the, the occupational therapists play a very, very important role in sensory integration and helping these children overcome these sensory problems. Mm -hmm. And then there's, there's support for the parents, which has got to be really helping the parent understand how to deal with this child's very unusual behavior in the young children getting because these children don't make eye contact and don't socialize you've got to actually help parents to actually get the child to look at them to socialize so uh, helping the parents to structure the child's life so parent support in those early well forever actually but especially right at the beginning uh, is very good mm -hmm. they are autism specific therapists who will take a whole lot of these things and put it into a, a formal program so there are programs um, called the ABA program floor time program there's a whole variety mm. of programs mm. which are being used but they basically incorporate what I'm talking about okay let's let's speak with Diane Diane welcome yeah, um, um, my son has autism he's um, four years old um, and I just wanted to ask the doctor what she thought of regressive autism. Um, he only presented with symptoms at 15 months and he was talking and he had hit all of his milestones and um, he literally disappeared yeah. um, in front of our eyes within a week. 
so that's such a so fifteen months. Uh, it's fifteen months of age. Am I right? Yes, yes. You see, that is such a common age at which, and that story is so common. So there's something happening in the brain at that stage of the children's life, which I think that's where our research has got to go, because the brain is going through various stages of development, and yeah. it may be that there's an over response of the brain to a normal regression. So we, we, in order for the brain to refine its development, it goes into a stage of programmed cell death, uh, which is normal, it has to happen. But yes. I, I think that these, in some children the brain overdoes it. And that's why we're getting autism. But this is a kind of a my theory. And I know what's happening to the brain and I know what happens to autistic children. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of putting these two things together that there's We've a critical point. Because between 18, 15 and 18 months, we, we get it in many, many of our children, we get that story. Yes. And would you think, you know, there's a new research and everything, would you think it was something to do with the um, over the non-shedding of the synapses in the brain? Yeah, yes, I think it's an overshedding. I think there's yes. an overreaction of the brain to something. So there definitely is a genetic predisposition in some families yes. because of this. often if you look at the families in many children with autism, you'll find that there's a relative with a language delay, a relative with ADHD, a relative that's a bit odd. So there's, mm. there's an underlying genetic predisposition and then some then something happens in that particular child that causes this overreaction. Yes, I know a lot of times they say it can be an environmental insult, but they can't pinpoint what it is. Yes, yes there may well be. There may well be something like that. And I'm yeah. afraid that's, that's the research we need to be doing. Yes, now we can stop that happening and we probably will then need to identify families at risk and mm. then um, you know, intervene on those. There's no Definitely. evidence that I mean, immunization does it. You know, I yes. mean, that research has been done. But there's, uh, we need to, well, maybe we need to rather protect these brains and whether it's going to be something like the uh, Omega oils or something that will yes. protect these children from yes, that happening. I agree. Yeah, I That's agree. That's where we and need to go. Yes, and I think early, rec early intervention and recognizing the symptoms early and getting help early is key because um, my son's come a very, very long way um, uh, because we recognize the symptoms so early. So Absolutely. I can just stress that to all the moms out there. But Diane, may I ask you, how are you coping with it? Do you believe um, you have enough information about it? Is yes, there, is you there... know, we belong to a program in Cape Town called REACH. Mm -hmm. um, reach autism um, it's an absolute phenomenal program mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult for families I'll be honest with you mm -hmm. it is it is so heartbreaking when you find out and there's so many things that you have to do and implement in your life mm -hmm. um, and change that you know you have to do for these kids it's speech therapy ABA diets biomedical, um, occupational therapy, it's overwhelming and it's very expensive. And you have and to start, 
and you have to start thinking about education for the child as well. Which is Definitely. Good. You know, tutors, facilitators, schools that will accept your child mm. um, with the facilitator. You know, these things, they don't come easily and they don't come cheap, you know. It's tough for these families out there. Very, very tough. And we have no help, you know. Mm. And But you found service delivery in all those areas that you require was was available? Well, we live in Searchfield, um, so we've had to, you know, go to Cape Town to get help. You know, I don't know if there's really anything in the garden route that offers, you know, um, help for these, you know, um, you know, um, centers for autism and, and, and stuff like that. So, you know, we've had to travel to Cape Town, but there are places in Cape Town that can help you, yes. Mm. But it's incredibly expensive. It really, um, you know... It would be it would be great to have some sort of you know like America has some sort of funding for with the government and to to help you with these kids you know um, but unfortunately we just don't have anything like that. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Diana, and we wish you all the best. Huh? It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for you. hearing me out. Yes, thank you, <laughs> Professor Jacqueline. What 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 sort of service delivery would be ideal for children with autism? You, you know, this lady sounds like she's a very intelligent lady and mm. been able to resource things. Mm. And sadly, I mean, she doesn't represent the majority of South Africa. Mm-hmm. So what I'm involved in a program called the Children's Disability Program, where we've got a team that are actually going out into all the communities mm. and training teachers and and um, parents and trying to intervene at in the community. Um, but obviously we're not offering what this little boy has. It's really just the beginning of helping parents to understand. But it, but again, it's it's. I've been I've been working in this field for a long time, and I've been pleasantly surprised how if you really just help parents to understand, give them simple tools, how you really change things. It's remarkable how well parents can do with very little if they understand and they're given a little bit of guidance. So that's, I mean, that most of our parents don't get. So I'm just saying that at a very simplistic level, maybe that's where we can start and make sure that everybody gets that. That's not the ideal. Um, You know, the ideal is to have a speech therapist, occupational therapist, a special school and all of those things. Mm. So maybe one needs to at least aim towards that in the future, but make sure that at this point in time that every child um, is screened for it so that our primary health care clinics could actually pick these children up and screen them into some type of support program. Mm. That would be a big step in the right direction. Talking about screening, it, 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 can, can autism be d- detected during pregnancy? No. Not at all? No. No, no. It's really, a, it's a behavioral problem. Mm. So you've, I mean, you can, you can diagnose certain of the conditions that cause autism. Mm. And so if you know in this particular family it's due to a, a chromosomal abnormality, then uh, if you want to then screen the baby to see whether it's got the same chromosomal abnormality, that you can do. During but, pregnancy? During pregnancy, oh. you know, fragile X syndrome, for instance, mm. that we can screen for during pregnancy. So, the the some of the it's a small percentage, but the percentage of the children have got chromosomal abnormalities, and that we can screen for. Now, you spoke about the overreaction of something in the brain. 
during the, the 16 months. Yes. Because you said that's the common time. I, w- I want you to just talk a bit about that because I, I think, <coughs> as you've discovered now, it's a crucial time, something happens, the study has not been done yet. But I just want to understand your concept of what you think is happening at the time. So in a certain number of children, this picture described by this lady is exactly what we see. Mm. So there's a certain subgroup of children, autistic children, who develop perfectly... Uh, and really intelligent mothers like this will say that the child was doing everything. Mm. And then at that critical period, which we're seeing, it's, it's about between 15 and 18 months, these totally normal children will regress. They'll lose, as they were saying, I mean, one little chap, uh, mom said he was speaking, already speaking sentences, so he was obviously very bright. Mm. So, and they're developing normally, and then they lose what they've got. And so this is my interest is neurobiology. So, um, so the brain goes through a stage continuously throughout life, but, it's, but at, that, at that period of programmed cell death. In other words, the, uh, you lose certain neurons in the brain. You have to. I mean, it's part of what must happen. Mm. And then you also lose certain uh, you, uh, synapses in the brain also get lost mm-hmm. because you're trying to refine the brain at that period. But my, my personal theory, um, we're totally not research, not research-based at this point, (laughs) is that there's an overreaction to this process in the brain at that point. So you're losing too much. You're losing more than you should. What would trigger the overreaction? It could be, you see, infections could do it Mm. because the inflammation does affect synaptogenesis. So it could be an infection at that stage, but possibly there could be something in the environment. There is a genetic, in these children there's very often family members who are a a little bit different. So it's often, it appears to be two things happening, that there's this genetic predisposition and then something else happens. And then we can't, you definitely say we can't... um maybe blame it on immunization or link it to immunization? There's no link made. I mean, they've done the research because of the big controversy. Mm. They, there's been extensive research looking whether immunization could have caused it, and it's all come back with an absolutely no. Mm. And I think it's really important for me to say that quite loudly, because if parents stop immunization, and, and this has happened in pockets of all over the world, that they've then lost their children from preventable diseases. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a sure, uh, you know, you get a scare. We don't want my child to be autistic, but then your child gets measles or whooping cough or something and dies. Um, you know, so I really want to say to parents, be very careful about yes, no, Think about sure. it very carefully for because sure. children die from infectious diseases. Professor Jacqueline, how do people get hold of you? Because I know a lot of people may want to contact you and sure. talk to you some more and learn more and and get the latest information as far as research is concerned because I'd like to believe there's continuous research happening at the moment around the world with regards to understanding autism. You know what? Uh, I'm kind of reticent because I'm working... 12 hours a day as it is. Oh, no, 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 uh, no, maybe, maybe just a, a... So I would say, 
say what they should do is contact Autism South Africa. Okay. And I work very closely with them. Okay. And uh, they can bounce. The, if Autism South Africa can't help them, they bounce all the emails back through to me. Okay. And then I will help as best as I, I can. Well, we're so grateful for your time because we know you're very busy. And thank you very much for talking about this very special subject. And let us know if any new information comes as and when it, you know, the research gets done. Yes, I hope it will be headline news. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> Professor you. Jacqueline, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. You take Bye -bye. care now. Bye-bye. Uh, Professor Lorna Jackson, contact Autism SA if you have any other questions. Um, now, I, I, it's no wonder she won, she was awarded the 2009 Inyatella Award for Philanthropy and Health. She, she does so very much. As I said, principal consultant pediatrician and neurodevelopmental specialist, head of the neurodevelopmental clinic and medical head of the teddy bear clinic for abused children and the clinic for visually impaired children. Um, and we thank her for her time.